0: Welcome, all of you. Um, you'll have to bear with me a little bit today. I'm, I'm a little melancholy. I, um, with um, Betty Stetsula's passing this morning, um, my heart's a little, little heavy. Um, not for her, <laughs> but for us. And um, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I got to spend a little time with her yesterday and read some scripture pray with her and pray with the family Uh, it was very meaningful to me and um, as I got up to leave I gave her a kiss on the forehead to say goodbye and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that and I'm you know, just the last couple of weeks we've lost Ravi Zacharias and we've lost Betty Statsula. Both of them saints in my estimation, and uh the world seems just a little bit dimmer. Um, you know, speaking of Ravi Zacharias, actually, um I've been I've been reading his autobiography since his death uh, if you haven't read it, it's from East to West, an amazing book. And uh, one of the things I didn't know that um, is is interesting, I, I thought I would share with you a little bit about the um, the reason why Ravi Zacharias is called Zacharias. That wasn't his ancestral name. As a matter of fact, he he comes from a line of Hindu. Brahmin priests in the Hindu caste system the highest priest system and um, but his uh, great 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 grandmother had been um, getting to know some Swiss and German missionaries back when she was a, a young gal and um, she had been meeting with them and she had some questions about this Jesus they were talking about. And so she had gone and tried to answer, to ask these questions. And she was a little interested in this. But her family found out about it and was quite displeased with her involvement with these missionaries. And um, people from a different religion So they told her, you cannot meet with them anymore. But being a a polite, tell them that she could no longer uh, converse with them and to meet with them because of her family. And at that very time, a cholera outbreak swept through the land. And while she was in the mission compound... She was quarantined, sound familiar? And she had to stay with them for two months until the cholera outbreak was finished. And during those two months, Robbie Zacharias's great, great, great grandmother gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And because she couldn't go back to her family, her family would have nothing to do with her, the missionaries became her family. And she had to take on a new name. There was another Indian uh, Hindu convert, young man. He too lost all family privileges and they had to come up with a new name. And they chose... Zacharias. And it is at that point the destiny of the family changed and they could be Christian. Huh. I had never known that. And it seemed very relevant to what we're going through right now. And God used it in amazing ways. In our our study today, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel chapter 21 we are at here at the end this will be the last sermon right now on 2 Samuel or the book of Samuel which is divided into 1st and 2nd Samuel so this reading that you had this week was chapters 21 through 24 which is really interesting the way 2nd Samuel finishes because 21 through 24 we believe is probably not so chronological they could sort of sum up David's reign and they have a little narrative in 21 they have a narrative in 24 and literally speaking both of them are very similar and so in their content and this is what's known as an inclusio where you have um, two narratives or two similar things put in and something in the middle. So you have a narrative. We talk about the Gibeonites and we talk about uh, chapter 21 talks about the Gibeonites and talks about David faltering in battle. Then you have David's uh, song of praise that he wanted to make sure was known. That he gave he gives credit to his life from god's blessing on him. God gets all the credit in his praise and then you have david's last official final words, which is really interesting and then a list of the mighty men of David who were alongside him during the times of battles and protection and God acting on behalf with his people and then we have chapter 24 which is the the story of David's loss of mind and doing something that he should never have done doing a census of the fighting men and the resulting plague so in chapter 1 you have a calamity you have a drought that is causing Distress within Israel. And then on 24 you have a plague. We have distress for the people of Israel. Those two sort of are bookends for the end of David's life. And so the writer of Samuel is trying to get everything covered. So that we can move on. And then when we get into Kings we'll start with the united monarchy and then it divides so most of us remember the story of david and the census and the plague that comes out so i chose not to do that one today i thought i would do i would we will read together second samuel chapter 21 and talk about these these two um components these Chapter 21 is divided into two spots, two sections, and so we'd look at them. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Second Samuel 21, and let's hear the Word of God just sort of flood down on us and, and see what we can glean from it today. Second Samuel 21, starting in verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gilbeah of Saul the Lord's chosen one so the king said I will give them to you the king spared Mephibosheth son of Jonathan the son of Saul because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan son of Saul but the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya, daughters Rizma, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she would borne to Adriel, the son of Barzali, the Mihalith. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest. Just as the barley harvest was beginning Rizpah Daughter of Aya Took sackcloth and spread it out For herself on a rock From the beginning of the harvest Till the rain poured down from the heavens On the bodies She did not let the birds touch them by day Or the wild animals by night When David was told Of Aya's daughter Rizpah Saul's concubine had done He went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Salah and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Once again, there was a battle between Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Repha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword said he would kill David. But Abishai son of Zariah came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. And then David's men swore to him saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time Zebekah, the Hushasite, killed Zaph, one of the descendants of Repha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhana, son of Jarrah, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Repha, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Repha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Okay. We read a chapter today in the Bible. This is interesting to look at. So, Jesus, when he was teaching, he said, the first will be last, and the last Will be first. So today in my sermon, we're going to deal with the last part of chapter 21 first, and we're going to deal with the first part of chapter 21 last. So let's look at a few things. The first thing we figured out in this second section of chapter 21 is that David's getting old. And he goes out to battle like he would normally do it, and he becomes exhausted. He can't do the things that he used to be able to do as a young man and he becomes exhausted and when they, the Philistines see him faltering they do everything in their power rushing to get David killed. I don't know about you but this story sort of resonates with me. There are some things That I used to be able to do easily, no problems. But now, they are a problem. And I become exhausted quicker than I used to. It's tough getting old. And we see that David is not superhuman. He's not like Moses, keeping his strength till he's 120. He is struggling. And because his men see him faltering, they determine this is your last battle because your life is more important than for you to lead us to go out into battle. He is so revered. He has so led his men to victory. He has taught them victory. I mean if we we look at what Israel went through all the years when you get to the judges pretty soon when we when you get to Samson the people of Israel are used to being subservient to the Philistines. They just say, "Huh? Yeah, like when Samson is hiding in a rock and the Philistines surrender, the people of of Israel go to him and say why are you causing us all these problems like it's okay that they're being ruled by the Philistines they they didn't know how to be victors and David taught them how to be victors and we see that Abishai one of is a brother of Joab he's this is this is a cousin of David who stays with him? Who's we see in the mighty men that he's one of the mighty men of, of, and one of the the three of Israel known as the leaders, comes to his rescue. I'm, I wonder if Solomon had heard this story. And he said this in Ecclesiastes chapter four. You've heard this before, but two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor if either of them falls down one can help the other up but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up also if two lie down together they will keep warm but how can one keep warm alone though one may be overpowered two can defend themselves court of three Strands is not quickly broken. Interesting. Another thing of this section. David's legacy lay not only in what he accomplished. But also what he left behind. This section shows other people that killed giants. Or men of renown from the Philistines. It wasn't just David. He set the precedence. But the others, we see other men of Israel relying on the Lord to bring about victory over a dominant foe. David's triumphs were meaningful not only for himself, but for others who learned victory through his teachings and his example. and at the end of the section it says they fell at the hands of David and his men part of the idea here is that David conquered enemies in the present so that it would be better for Israel specifically his son Solomon in the future David was a man of war we see we will see soon that Solomon was a man of peace. He didn't go out to battle. Didn't have to. Because his dad had laid the framework. Sometimes when we are faced with, vic- with challenges and we are victorious, they aren't just for us. They're examples for others. Others. and we can pass that on to the next generation now for the first half of this chapter so who are these Gibeonites that David gave seven of Saul's descendants to well if you remember earlier on this year when we read Joshua when Joshua goes into the promised land and begins to take they went to Jericho, they go to Ai they do start taking the land over bigger larger forces and they determine that God is with them and the different Amorite peoples either go to war and they are defeated. They go to war and they're defeated. The Gibeonites are the ones that were observing this. And so we hear the story of the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9 and I'd like to read this to you because it's significant in many ways. Starting in verse 1, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread in their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you lived near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where did you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of you, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are and our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey." The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors, living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon. Kephra, Bereth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the elders, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the God's wrath will not fall on us. For breaking the oath we swore to them. So as Israel grows up, as it becomes a nation, and they fill in a lot of the areas, having battle with many of the Amorite tra- tribes, they leave the Gibeonites alone. They don't harm them because of an oath that was made with God's name involved throughout all the time. It didn't matter that the Gibeonites lied to the nation of Israel. It doesn't matter that they practiced deception, Joshua and the elders swore by oath to make a treaty with them. And rightly so, the leaders of Israel at the time said, we made an oath to God and that's important and we're not going to do anything. So, years later, Saul practices genocide in trying to kill all the Gibeonites. This is not recorded in Scripture. But it seems like everyone knows about this. Everyone knew that this this had been done by Saul in his zeal. So the massacre isn't recorded in Scripture. But there's no doubt that this occurred during Saul's reign as king. There's some irony there. Because one of the reasons why Saul loses his line of kingship it stops with Saul because of his disobedience to God and one of the big disobediences God tells him to wipe out the Amalekites and he chooses not to yet the gibeonites who an oath had been made with God's name He did try to annihilate and destroy, huh? He acted when he shouldn't have acted and then he doesn't act when he was supposed to act. This is one of the reasons why Saul was removed from the kingship. So there's a few principles here that we need to remember. God expects us to keep our promises. Another irony is when David he asks the gibeonites cuz he wants to know how do I make this right? He asks the gibeonites. How can I make this right? He asks them twice. What 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 do you want me to do for you? Because he wants to make this right. And they say we want seven. We want seven of Saul's descendants, men, seven being the fulfillment of completion in propitiation or being done. Being complete. And Saul, I'm, I'm sorry, and David spares Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Why? He had two lame legs. He probably wasn't doing well. Because he had made an oath with his father that he would protect and care for Jonathan's descendants. He had made that oath, and so he spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan. Now, a Mephibosheth dies, but it's not that Mephibosheth. It's another Mephibosheth within the family name. Another principle, God expects nations to, to keep their promises. The drought fell on the entire nation of Israel. The first year, wow there's a drought. Second year, hey the drought continues. The third year we see at that time David goes to the Lord. Why is there a drought? What's up? Isn't that funny how sometimes We have to get to our very lowest before we seek God. It even happened to David. The third principle is that time does not diminish our obligation to promises. Just because a lot of time has gone around, we're still expected to keep our promises, our oaths. And the last principle is God's correction may come a long time after the offense. David is the one; he doesn't kill Saul's descendants. He asked the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites asked for seven. Everyone wonder why? Why is this in the Bible? Why was this so important to be part of the record of David's reign? I think it's very important for the the writer of Samuel to make sure that David is seen not as someone who goes and wipes out Saul's ancestors because they could possibly be uh, considered in line for the kingship. Is it? David is doing this what the Gibeons wanted, not what he did. And I think that David is cut to the quick when he sees the faithfulness of the mother and the relative of the seven killed. She stayed on a rock of sackcloth, shooing away the birds, keeping the wild animals away Day and night and it says until the rains came. So the barley harvest, it's been planted probably around April. The rains come sometime later and we look we think probably the dates probably around July, August. Day and night. She shooed the birds away. She chased off the wild animals to not have her family face the shame of being eaten because their bodies were exposed. And because of her faithfulness, David goes out to Jabesh to retrieve the bodies of Saul. Jonathan, and get a proper burial in the family tomb, Saul's father Kish. So what does this mean to us? What can we take from chapter 21? It's just an interesting story. Or can we take something from this to be able to help us in our lives from reading God's Word? I'm convinced, I've said this a hundred times from the pulpit, every time we read Scripture, we should be changed. We should be given wisdom to step out into this world. First one I come up with Don't make unnecessary oaths. Don't. Let me tell you what Jesus said about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now that is a true statement. And that is a statement that has been said from, you've heard it said, Jesus is recognizing it's true. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But in true rabbinical fashion, he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, Or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. For you cannot even make even one hair white or black. All you need to say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So three things to remember from this. If you've made oaths. Don't break them. If you've done that, if you've made oaths, don't break them. If you have broken an oath, go to the one offended and see how to make things right. Listen, I've broken oaths in my life. Regretfully. But I've had to go to the one that I broke the oath with and ask her, how do I make things right? If you have offended somebody, if you have broken an oath to someone, just like David went to the Gibeonites, what can I do to make this right? With the idea that the Gibeonites would pray after and say, okay, it's been completed. So that God brought the reins There may be something going on in your life. Could it be because you've broken an oath and nothing's been done about it? As far as it depends on you, do your best to make things right. But Jesus said, simply yes or no, anything beyond that. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. What he's saying is let your word be your bond. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Listen, what this world needs today is for people to do what they say they're going to do or to not do what they say they're not going to do. With my with my father, when he said he would do something, he kept his word. He kept it. You knew if if my dad said something, it was going to happen as far as it could with him. I feel like we've lost that in this generation. We have people changing their tune in midstream, whenever it's more beneficial for them. We need to be people that when we speak, it means something. When we make obligations for one another that we fulfill them. When I say, yes, I'll do it, I need to be, I need to do that. We need to be set apart. We need to be different than the world. We need to rely on a contract to hold us to it. When we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. It's as simple as that. Because the world doesn't do that. And that's when you get opportunities to be able to share the truth of what Christ has done in your life. We need to operate on a different level We need to operate on the fact that we have a higher calling than just getting by. And the gospel is what changes us. It changes us. As I conclude today, Carol and I were talking yesterday about Betty Statsula. And what are some of the things that we are going to remember about her? And I can tell you one of the things that stands out in my memory over all the years, her service to others and her example to others. I was talking with Carol Baird and she said, you know, when she was working for the daycare, she'd be walking, she would stop. Pick up trash. It wasn't her trash, but she picked it up. It was her service to do that. And she finds herself years later doing the exact same thing because of what Betty's example was. Betty say served the daycare for a number of years. She was the church secretary for Erskine State's, the first pastor here. I can remember standing on this very stage as a young boy doing a puppet show and we had music and Betty played the piano for us we used to have a rock facade right here that went up to the baptistry and as a young boy I liked to pretend that that was a mountain and I was going to climb it I remember Betty coming to the doors hey get down from there That's all she had to say. And we obeyed. She had that kind of respect. I'm going to miss her. But what a life lived. Oh, if we could do just that too. For the rest of our study in kings, you will hear David compared to a great king. And all the other kings are compared to David. Not to Saul, but to David. And how he lived. How he acted. Why don't we live a life, that life that will be made different because of what Jesus has done for us and our acceptance of Him in our lives that's my prayer for all of you it's my prayer for myself to make a difference by how I act and what I say Father God we come before you we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you mean to us Father God today we talked about death atoning for an oath we also oftentimes talk about a death that was paying the debt for an offense and that's all of us sinning against you god but yet you allowed your son who went willingly to die The death of a sinner even though he was not he paid the price so that the wrath of God was filled thank you Jesus for what you have done Lord God help us to be more like your son every day every opportunity to give your name glory In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.